Welcome to the Modern Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Gavin Meenan, and on this podcast, I will be speaking to inspirational individuals who specialize in the field of physical and mental health to offer you the tools that you need to become a stronger, healthier, and more confident man in today's world. Hello and welcome to episode number 76 of the Modern Warrior podcast. Today I am joined by Kevin Bass. Kevin is an MD PhD student in Texas. He studies ketogenesis in the colon and the role of fiber in modulating the immune system. Kevin is also well respected in the nutritional field. He's a man who debunks the myths around nutrition and brings people the truth as to the role of certain foods when it comes to longevity, health, and well-being. So, Kevin, how are you, my man? I'm doing good. It's, uh, it's early here, but but I'm uh, limping along, and uh, I'm excited to be here. Oh, well, it's an absolute honor to have you, man. I've, I've been loving your content, and I'm all about the, the bullshit filters and anyone who's uh, speaking the truth out there and debunking misinformation. Uh, gets my respect straight away. So I appreciate that. And I know, I'm pretty sure you get a lot of pushback from the information you put out there. I get it. Uh, I appreciate that a lot. And I get an insane amount of pushback uh, every day. It's like, you've got people that love it and you've got people that uh, absolutely do not. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a mixed thing there for sure. But overall, it's very rewarding because I know that especially when people like you uh, message me and and let me know how you think about what I'm doing. Uh, It makes all the difference because I know that I'm actually helping people in their lives. So Mm -hmm. what's sort of got you to this point where you're offering people real information? Uh, It is a long story and it really goes back to me being a kid, but I'm going to actually just going to start you uh, how I was feeling before med school because it can take a while. So Uh, If I told the whole thing. So I started being interested in sort of the obesity epidemic. I I was about to start medical school. I was looking for something to um, sort of give me a direction as I underwent medical training. And one of the things I was interested in was the obesity epidemic because um, obesity underlies so many of people's health problems. Obesity and their nutrition issues, people eating ultra processed food, junk food, it underlies so many people's health problems. So my thinking was, if we solve that problem, if we make, you know, the food system better and how people eat better, then uh, we can just in sort of one stroke, uh, drastically improve a lot of people's health. So I was very interested in that. And I thought it was so obvious what we needed to do. Uh, Everybody would agree on it, which was one of the things that was appealing about working in that area because it just seemed uh, so clear. Uh, But then as I got online and I started talking about this with other people, I started to see very clearly that there was actually a huge amount of disagreement. Uh, There's all sorts of different camps about uh, what we should do about obesity, what diets people should have, what are the good things, what are the bad things. Some people said animal products are bad. Some people said, no, 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 it's carbohydrates are bad. And other people have all sorts of different strange ideas about um, how we're actually supposed to address the poor health that we're seeing in so many people these days. So then I started thinking, well, why is that? Uh, I started digging into the claims of different people and especially the more extreme claims. And I started to see, oh, well, um, a lot of this isn't actually based on evidence. A lot of it's based on conjecture, speculation, and it's poorly supported by, um, both, both it's poorly supported by evidence in some cases, in many cases, actually contradicted by the evidence that we actually have. So then I started to realize, okay, if we are constantly arguing about what is causing obesity epidemic, is causing people's poor health, then how are we actually as a society going to address this problem? If we can't come to any consensus, then we can't actually make any policies. We can't come to any agreements about what we need to do. And so we're going to keep having this problem. So what what happened is I started thinking, well, in order to actually address the obesity epidemic, we need to address the information misinformation problem going on online. So that's, that's where I am. I'm trying to address the misinformation problem, uh, try to help people produce one perspective, at least on my channel and at least my social media, here's this one perspective I think is correct so that we can, uh, at least 
I don't know, for me, like step by step, little by little, maybe uh, contribute to people having a, a greater awareness of what uh, science evidence, et cetera, actually says as opposed to, as opposed to what it doesn't say. So maybe someday we can have, uh, you know, a, a, an impact on a, on a societal level. I mean, now it seems like so pie in the sky, but um, but yeah, at minimum, I can at least make a, a small difference in, in the individual people's lives, and that makes a big difference. So yeah, huge man. And yeah, as much as there's an obesity epidemic, there's a misinformation epidemic at the moment. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You're trying to counter, counter. You're you're trying to, in your own information, trying to push back against and give some people real real evidence-based researched information yep definitely what are some of the things that you have found that uh, has been perhaps pushed back by society or pushed back by other people in the medical field possibly what do you mean some of the some of the uh more popular arguments or more popular topics there for tackling obesity that's being projected by other people in the media or other people in the field that you don't agree with okay um, <laughs> is, it, is, um it, is it as simple as having a calorie restrictive diet and being more active or are we missing a, a, a lot more that's that's part of it i mean so i think it ultimately does come down to that in the end but to get there is uh really where the where the battle is or where uh, people need information. So it's easy to say, Hey, you just need to eat less and move more. But like, that's like saying, I don't know. I, I think, um, I remember whenever I used to like go to clubs and bars and stuff and, um, I would try to approach women and I would have like friends and stuff or whatever, or even some cases I would give this advice to them. One of the bits of advice people would give to each other is like, Oh, just be confident. Like, just be confident. But like, you're like, wait a second, like, how do I be confident if I don't know, like, how do I just do that? I can't just like will that, you know? And I feel like the uh, idea of just eat less is the same sort of idea. How do I actually eat less? So um, I think there, uh, understanding why people are overeating is extremely useful because in order to know how we're going to eat less, we actually need to know why we're overeating. Um, the current theories that I think are the most prominent among the, the, the best in the field, the, the best obesity researchers, is that we have foods that are basically what they call hyperpalatable, which just means that they taste really delicious and um, they are calorie dense, which just means there's a lot of calories in a small little package and it tastes really good. And these foods have been created on the market in a sort of iterative process of uh, constant improvement towards this end of getting you to eat more of them. So think of all your favorite uh, uh, packaged foods or, or, or our least favorite packaged foods, for that matter, at least with respect to weight loss, that, uh, that taste really good and that will make you fat if you eat too much of them. These foods have been created as a result of a very long evolutionary process of, of competition between different companies to get you to eat more of them. And the companies that figured out the formula to get you to eat the most uh, did well, and the ones that didn't, didn't do as well. And then there was competition at another level again. And so iteratively, we've got these foods that are making people obese because of the, the market has, um, has, has produced uh, these foods that sell the best. So the foods that are selling the best are the most obesogenic. And basically the market itself is creating obesogenic foods because of the competition. So yeah. Um, what are the characteristics of these? I already listed two. Basically they're hyper palatable and they're calorie dense. And I think those are the two main ones. So if you want to try to reduce your calorie intake, you want to eat foods that are uh, not so, uh, <laughs> not so delicious. I mean, if you think of like what I have in front of me right now, I have a, a bowl of oatmeal uh, and I just got up because as I mentioned, it's 6.15 a.m. here in the United States. It's a bowl of oatmeal. I do add a little bit of sugar on it or not sugar, but like uh, sweetener, um, like monk fruit extract and then erythritol. 
and that makes it taste a little bit better. But like, I don't, um, I don't add a bunch of oils into it in addition, you know, I don't add a bunch of butter. I can, if I need those calories, if I'm like desperately in need of those calories, but I try to avoid that. So I try to make the food taste relatively good, but I don't like try to make it taste really delicious. Uh, although I can to some degree with the sweeteners, the artificial sweeteners. So I try to limit the calorie density and I don't try to uh, make everything taste the, the most good that it can possibly taste. Um, yeah. And then, and then I think another thing that is sort of a black box in addition to those two factors is sort of keeping things relatively unprocessed. We don't know why processing tends to cause foods to, to be more obesogenic, but like maybe it's the lack of fiber, maybe it's the reduction in protein content. There's, uh, there's many different things, but in general, focusing on keeping the foods minimally processed as opposed to to uh, things that you get from a package. But of course, that's very difficult for many people because uh, there's time issues, there's resource issues, how are you gonna cook all your food, et cetera. And so one of the things that I personally do that I know that other people do is I do like meal prep. I actually have uh, meal prep on the weekends where I just have everything made for the entire week. And that way I can um, avoid this issue of like having to spend all of my time during the week cooking and making food. So that's how I, how I do that. I have, I have a big freezer where I actually put everything and then I microwave everything throughout the week. That's the way that I do it. So ultimately I end up having like kind of industrially produced food, except it's industrially produced by me. Um, so it is very convenient, but, uh, yeah. So yeah, that, I think those, I, I would say calorie density, hyper palatability and, uh, the level of processedness are some of the three main issues with respect to reducing calorie intake. And then there's a bunch of other issues independent of calorie intake that also um that also impact health for example uh, sodium content saturated fat content fiber content uh you know whether it's an animal or plant food the protein content etc but yeah as far as reducing calorie intake is concerned the main things are going to be uh calorie density um hyper palatability and the level of processedness and the uh, and the rest is sort of uh building off of that sort of on the margins, which those other factors do have an impact and a significant impact. But uh, what I've mentioned there, those, those three things are probably the main uh, base to build on when you want to think about how to reduce your food intake. So it's not necessarily carbohydrate content. You can have, again, I can have a bowl of oatmeal. I'm not going to get fat off of just, eat, if I just eat bowls of oatmeal a day, I'm not going to get fat. It's going to be really hard to do that. It's going to be almost impossible um, unless I start adding like butter to it. If I start adding a bunch of butter and then I start adding a bunch of sugar, then yeah, maybe we can start thinking about getting fat on all the bowls of oatmeal every day, but it's not the carbohydrates themselves. Likewise, if I eat uh, just chicken breasts, right, I'm not going to get fat because I'm eating animal products because it's just chicken breasts. It's going to be very difficult to do that. So those are some two myths. Uh, two of the main myths is like animal products are making people fat or carbohydrates and making people fat in both cases it's not necessarily true because you can eat both of each without uh, getting fat so that's that's some uh, core principles and those are some core some ideas that i think are wrong and uh yeah i appreciate that yeah well just to sort of narrow it down then in terms of a couple of the buzzwords that are out there at the moment and protein is one of them mm. so mm. depending on you if you want to build lean muscle mass or if you want to drop some body fat eat more protein seems to be the, the, the constant messages out there with either of those goals. Is it overemphasized? Is the protein intake overemphasized or is it as important as these people make it out to be? I think if you want to maximize your body composition, if you want to get like, if you want to get shredded, if you want to get jacked, I think protein is a really important factor in that. The difference between um, consuming, say, a high protein diet and a low protein diet, like not, say for low protein, like not even eat, meeting the government, um, you know, the government rec recommendations for the average person versus say, which is like less than, you know, 0.8 grams per kilogram, at least in the United States, and I'm sure it's similar in Ireland, uh, versus, you know, for a bodybuilding person, which we often hear something like one gram per pound or like 2.2 grams per kilogram body weight. Uh, the difference between that is really large as far as your long-term outcomes are concerned. Now in the short term, it's not going to be 
something you're necessarily going to see like huge differences in your body composition. But over time, as you train, uh, the benefits will compound and the difference between somebody who has a high protein intake and a low protein intake in terms of their lean mass, in terms of their uh, fat mass is going to be substantial. Now, I think the impact of protein on satiety and on weight loss is definitely overstated. So for example, again, this is like oatmeal is one of the best foods that you can eat as far as like um, having a lean or having a healthy body weight is concerned. So for sure, oatmeal is great. If you only eat oatmeal though, are you going to have your optimal uh, lean body mass versus your fat mass? And I don't think you will. Uh, you're not going to um, significantly impact your overall body weight, but you won't maximize your body composition. So the way that I think about protein ultimately is it helps to maximize your body composition by increasing lean mass and reducing fat mass. So there's sort of a, 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 a body recomposition effect or a nutrient repartitioning effect towards lean mass and away from fat mass. Whereas other factors are much more important with respect to controlling your body weight and protein only has a really, a relatively small impact in that equation. So that's how I think about protein. Okay. And I think the science is clear on that. Mm -hmm. And then if you were to uh, shift the focus towards some of the supplementations that are being advocated out there at the moment, um, are there some that you stand, you stand with in terms of their level of importance? I know you've spoken about vitamin D, for example. Um, and that being quite significant, are there other supplements then such as fish oils, such as creatine or creatine is well researched. And if there's any, um, do you have any hesitancy about creatine? Is there any supplements out there at the moment that you feel um, are being again over their importance is over exaggerated and they're really not that it really doesn't matter as much. Yeah. Um, I think, well, we can start with creatine because I, I, I think creatine is great. I think creatine, I'm not even sure creatine has downsides, except maybe if you're like an endurance athlete and you want to keep your body weight relatively low, uh, you're going to, of course, add a couple kilos when you start taking creatine, I guess, anywhere between one and three kilos, depending upon your, your body mass and depending upon how much creatine you already have in your muscle. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're an endurance athlete, creatine is not going to help you as much because it doesn't tend to help. Uh, those energy systems within your muscles that are important for endurance exercise, like strictly speaking. But if you are any sort of like strength athlete or combat sports athlete or anybody who uses a lot of anaerobic uh, kind of systems in the anaerobic energy systems, then creatine is going to be great. The other thing about creatine is there's some indication that it can help improve cognitive function, especially in people who don't eat as many animal products uh, and people who eat more, maybe a little bit less of an improvement, but certainly I think it helps to buffer against say sleep, like sleep deprivation against like cognitive stress, that kind of thing. Whenever you're feeling stressed, whenever you're sleep deprived, apparently, or the evidence seems to indicate that can sort of provide a buffer and help prevent some of the negative effects of that. And also there's a substantial amount of evidence supporting this idea that can help to prevent brain injury and can promote healthy brain aging. Although those pieces of evidence are a little bit more weak, but I'm actually most excited about that because that's one of my areas of, of most interest. I'm interested in how to um, help cognitive function. So yeah, I think creatine is good all around. The only thing that you should be worried about a little bit is if maybe you're an endurance athlete if you are somebody who's worried about weight gain, the weight gain from creatine is entirely in the muscles. It's just going to make your muscles a little bit thicker and it will only make you look better unless you're like, I don't know, already like 300 pounds of muscle or something. But it, in which case, I don't think you're worried about creatine. So I think for everybody, creatine is awesome. I, I would recommend creatine for everybody. I, uh, I love creatine. So uh, we can start there and uh, on that positive level. On vitamin D level, there's some um, positives and negatives. So I think the positives have been dramatically overemphasized. It's been mostly done on the basis of, uh, of observational data that are probably not, um, it's hard to get into the details here, but it's probably not indicative of the actual real effects of vitamin D on health. That said, I think there might be some immune benefit to, to vitamin D, especially with respect to cancer risk. Uh, so if you're very lean, um, 
if you take vitamin D supplements, and I wouldn't take a lot, and we'll talk about them in, ju- in just a second. If you're very lean, it can, um, there's some indication in some really rigorous studies, although it's, uh, it, it's hard to know for sure, and we don't know 100% for sure, but there's some indication that it might decrease some cancer risk marginally. Mm-hmm. The downside of vitamin D supplementation, however, is that um, it may reduce your, your bone mineral density. So at higher doses, just even as low as, uh, what is it, even as low as so the 4,000 or 2,000 international units, it might be 4,000. Yeah, it's 4,000 international units um, in some study. Well, in one good study, really rigorous study, it showed that people randomized to that level of vitamin D supplementation saw decreases in their bone mineral density. Now, this is only over the course of maybe two years, so they didn't see any significant changes in bone strength. But one can imagine over the course of, say, 10 to 20 years, uh, that would end up translating into decreases in bone strength if those decreases in bone mineral density uh, continued. And it does seem to be the case that they do. So over the course of the study, uh, people in that group kept having reduced bone density over time bone mineral density over time. And the same thing goes for a group that was assigned 10,000 international units. So what do I do? So for me, uh, I started out deficient in vitamin D. Uh, That's why I became really interested in it. Um, I don't know the units in uh, Ireland, but I started out like really, really low in the single digits for the units that we use over here. Um, So I ended ended up having to supplement but I, I think that one shouldn't be too aggressive in supplementation. So for me, I do 2,000 international units, and I think that that works out well for me. Uh, but I also have really, really high bone density because I've been doing weight training for a really long time. So people who have been doing weight training for a really long time and they have high bone density, I think vitamin D is a relatively safe bet. It's not going to produce dramatic benefits across the board in health that many people will promise, but there may be some small benefits to, for example, cancer risk, maybe some uh, mood and emotional benefits, potentially if you're deficient, if you're starting out on a deficient basis. Uh, but those those benefits aren't, aren't super well established, um, but those might actually be uh, counterbalanced by some bone bone issues if you're, if you're not starting at high levels of bone density in the first place. So if you're starting, if you're say a woman and you're worried about your bone density, then you might be a little bit more circumspect about your vitamin D supplementation. Ultimately, we don't have the answers precisely about who should get vitamin D supplements and who shouldn't. Um, the stuff that I'm telling you right now is really on the edge of what the science is. If you go talk to, say, somebody who's in, uh, say, they, they formulate recommendations for official bodies, they'll, they'll tend to be even more conservative about this. Um, if you're deficient in vitamin D, according to relatively conservative guidelines and a conservative cutoff, then I'd say it's definitely a good idea to supplement, but you don't need to supplement beyond that. And I think there are some risks to doing so. So that's kind of the overview. And I know that's a little bit fluffy and uh, not entirely clear, but the fact is we don't exactly know uh, and have a super clear idea about vitamin D yet. Uh, it but it's de- certainly not as big a deal as a lot of people make it out to be. So does it depend on, mm-hmm. on, on, on the climate you live in? Like if you're exposed to a lot of sunlight, then you need less vitamin D supplementation. Definitely. Or, yeah. Yeah. We live here in Ireland and it's, it's cloudy and rainy 300 days a year. So we would need to supplement vitamin D more so than someone that lives in the Caribbean, for example. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, that's what the data shows that people uh, closer to the equator tend to have vitamin, higher vitamin D levels for sure. So, but you can get a test from your doctor if your doctor wants to give it to you. But I, you know, I don't know. Some doctor, I don't know. If you get a test, you can find out whether you have uh, low or, or not vitamin D levels and you can decide from there if you have that, if you have access to that. All right. just, just to sort of move on to, because this podcast, we're mainly speaking to men here. And of course, for a lot of men, they want to improve or increase their testosterone levels. Yeah. Are there, is there some information or some um, new ones out there that you've debunked about increasing your testosterone? That's great. Um, I've done some stuff like, for example, there's this guy named Andrew Huberman who is telling people that he yeah. ate butter in order to increase his testosterone. He, he thought that the uh, dietary cholesterol in butter, because it's uh, his cholesterol is a precursor to uh, testosterone, the body changes cholesterol into testosterone. If you ate more cholesterol, 
then you are going to increase your testosterone. Well, that's not the case. <laughs> I mean, because even if you take a statin medication, for example, uh, and you reduce your cholesterol by 50%, which is what even a low dose statin will often do, uh, you'll only reduce your testosterone by like, I don't know, it's like two or 3%. It's like clinically insignificant amount. So your, your body's testosterone production doesn't depend on your blood cholesterol. The cholesterol is synthesized, going to be synthesized within the testicles themselves. And, you, and the blood cholesterol has a, a, a negligible impact on how much testosterone your uh, testes are going to be producing. If you're interested in increasing your testosterone, increasing your blood cholesterol isn't the smartest way to do that anyway, because your blood cholesterol, um, especially in men, is going to impact your cardiovascular disease risk and um, well, so the more cardiovascular disease that you have, uh, many things stop working, especially like sexual function, et cetera. So it, it, it can be end up being counterproductive if you take that approach and it doesn't work anyway. So what I'll say is, um, I know that there are now, especially now there are some supplements definitely coming onto the market that are marketed as testosterone boosters. I haven't gotten a chance to look into those yet and, uh, debunk them, so to speak. Uh, we do have, <laughs> I mean, if you, if you get a test and you see that you're low in testosterone, I'll tell you this, um, your testosterone levels can impact your well-being. It can impact your mental well-being. So if you are clinically low in testosterone and you increase your testosterone levels above that clinically low level, uh, mental well-being will increase. It's not just a factor of your muscle mass and your sports performance, although that will also improve as well, but mental well-being will increase, which is super important. Mm -hmm. So I would say if you find yourself at a clinically low level of testosterone, um, you can try the supplement boosters. I, don't, I haven't debunked and looked at them in depth yet, and I need to, and I will. Uh, but one of the ways that it, that this is often treated is uh, there are different drugs that people can use. I would say the, the main way to start uh, if anybody's looking into that, is probably not to start with uh, exogenous testosterone. It's probably to start with something like something called HCG. That's because HCG will increase your testosterone production uh, sort of endogenously, and you won't be shutting down as many processes. Also, HCG won't shut down your fertility, whereas exogenous testosterone, the mm -hmm. you know stuff you, you inject, although you'll inject both of them. Uh, will shut you down in terms of your fertility. So maybe a safer bet would be to start with HCG. And then uh, if that doesn't work, then you can try exogenous, exogenous testosterone. In most cases, the HCG will work. But as far as testosterone boosters are concerned, I don't know uh, about those drug supplements as well as I want to. And I will be learning more about that and communicating more about that in the future. Yeah. So that's yeah, what I'll like say. The, the, there, there's, there's a few kind of supplementations that are being floated around there in terms of um, their importance with increasing testosterone levels. I think zinc is, is one of them. Zinc, yeah. Apparently zinc might have an impact on testosterone levels. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what I, I yeah. But the only, but beyond, the only way really is, is that you are um, going to uh, go through a more rigorous process of injecting yourself with, uh, what do you call it? HIT's HCG? HCG, yeah. That would be what you get prescribed from a doctor. I'll say this. The, the probably the biggest reason a lot of men have low testosterone levels is excess body fat because testosterone gets converted into estrogen in the body fat. Uh, and then when it's converted into the estrogen in the body fat, it actually can then in turn turn off your testosterone uh, in addition to that. So not only are you you're losing testosterone from the conversion into estrogen, but the estrogen itself then actually turns off testosterone production even more. Um, so one of the best ways to increase testosterone in somebody who's overweight is to lose the body fat. That's going to be one of the go-tos. And you can do that in a natural way, increase your testosterone, reduce your estrogen, get better overall uh, well-being through uh, body fat loss. So I'd say that would be a go-to for somebody who's uh, having low testosterone but having excess uh, body fat. Yeah. And, of course, there's other things as well being promoted to improve your testosterone, such as saunas, so, such as Heat, cold exposure and intermittent fasting as well seems to be something quite popular really people are saying that they should use sauna and cold and intermittent fasting to increase testosterone well, yeah that that wow. sauna will have that well that heat exposure will have a benefit 
to your testosterone levels that wow again you could do either or you could do all of them if you're if you're crazy enough to do so um or cold exposure will improve your testosterone levels or intermittent fasting as well will have benefit well, to well the one thing yeah that's funny well the one thing i'll say there is uh i don't think heat has ever been shown to improve your testosterone increase your testosterone i'm not sure about cold i haven't looked into that i don't think there's any change in your hormones uh through sauna i will tell you this though that uh sauna will uh especially if you do it frequently uh will decrease your sperm concentration and your sperm count quite significantly there was one study that was recently done where uh, they did sauna two times a week for three months and they saw a 75 percent reduction in sperm concentration and that's just twice a week for for three months so if you're trying to conceive or have children i think sauna is a bad idea fortunately it doesn't affect your um testosterone production in the testes but again like as as uh you can tell we have men have a scrotum our testicles aren't inside our bodies they're outside our bodies for a reason that's potentially costly for them to be outside our bodies so that's a really good reason there has to be a really good reason for them to be outside our bodies and that's related to the fact that uh sperm production doesn't happen very well uh at higher body temperatures you need a lower body temperature so if you're having sauna you are basically frying your sperm, especially if you're doing it often. So I'd say that otherwise, you know, if you're, if you're trying not to have children, then maybe having sauna often is a good idea. So it's not, I don't think it's going to affect your testosterone levels. Intermittent fasting. That's really interesting that you brought that up because a recent study was published a review study that indicated that uh, you might actually have reductions in sex steroid production with intermittent fasting. I will say this in the short term, Intermittent fasting will probably reduce your um, your testosterone levels. If you have excess body fat and it's helping you to reduce your body fat, then it may in the long term help you to increase your testosterone levels after you've normalized your body weight at a lower body weight. Um, that said, intermittent fasting hasn't been shown to be especially effective compared to other strategies. So other strategies are just as effective as intermittent fasting. But if you wanna try intermittent fasting, uh, you can. One method that's been shown to be equally effective to intermittent fasting is simply having consistent meal timing. So just eating at the same times, being mindful about the times that you're eating and eating in a structured manner and not snacking is going to be roughly as effective uh, in terms of your body weight loss as intermittent fasting. So that's something alternatively that you could try. Now, does intermittent fasting itself, simply the fact that you uh, say, reduce your food intake to one or two meals a day in a, in a small window, does that itself, even maintaining the same body weight, cause uh, reductions in testosterone or sex steroid levels, estrogen levels in women? I'm actually not sure. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I, I wouldn't imagine that it actually helps you to have better testosterone production. I can't imagine why you would expect for it to be better. Um, but some people also say that uh, something like sauna and uh, especially alternative heat and cold exposure will help to increase your, your growth hormone. And it will, uh, just, just a slight tangent, but it's important because this, this kind of idea gets circulated. It will help to increase your growth hormone, but that's not going to have any clinically beneficial effects. So even if um, you do get increases in your growth hormone due to that, you're not going to get any uh, positive changes to um to your body composition. And the same goes for intermittent fasting. Fasting also increases your growth hormone, but you're not going to become jacked and huge and muscular because you're fasting. It's the opposite's going to happen, even though your uh, growth hormone is changing. So one shouldn't necessarily chase these biomarkers, even if it, even if, um, even if intermittent fasting did increase testosterone levels to a small degree, it might not be clinically significant. And there's some signal that it doesn't. So one should probably chase uh, things that are going to have a big impact and not major in the minors using intermittent fasting, sauna and heat exposure for uh, increasing testosterone or growth hormone levels or hormone levels in general is majoring in the minors. You want to focus on the things that are going to have the highest yield. These sorts of modalities for uh, chasing these kinds of biomarker changes are not going to have super high yields, I think is the take home there. What is the, what, what's your general opinion on intermittent fasting aside from, testosterone production yeah if people if people like it and it um and it helps them yeah it's great i i think on average um on average it's not going to be better than say simply like consistent meal timing or it's not going to add anything to 
uh, calorie restriction. And that's been shown in multiple different studies at this point, a recently released one. And then there's an unpublished study that was uh, presented at one major obesity conference about two years ago that was very well done that showed the same thing. It's not going to add anything additional to most um, to most strategies to reduce weight. So you're, you're really legitimately not going to get a whole bunch of, a, uh, of an additional effect. Um, if you're already being super mindful about how you're eating, about your meal timing, about how much you're taking, you're not going to get anything additional from just adding intermittent fasting. But if you're just starting in your weight loss journey and it's something you want to try above all the other strategies, all the other strategies may seem cumbersome or you don't want to count calories or there's other things you just don't want to bother with it and you, you like intermittent fasting as an idea, you can try it and you'll see some benefit. You'll see a, a significant reduction in weight as a result of doing that. Uh, but I would just say keep open-minded because if, um, if you want to try something else, you can try other things without losing all of those gains. You just need to be mindful and have different other strategies for doing the same thing. And adding intermittent fasting on top of that is not necessarily going to help you very much, probably not much at all. So that's what I would say. It's a good, it's a good starting strategy for a beginner, but it's not necessarily uh, going to add a great deal to other strategies. And aside from a weight loss perspective, does it does it have any other benefits from a cognitive perspective, for example, or performance perspective? Energy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's interesting. So, um, huh. So some people report like, okay, there's a few things. Some people report in the morning feeling sluggish after they like eat breakfast. I've definitely experienced that for sure. So anecdotally, I've noticed that some mornings I get up and like, I'll eat something and I'll like want to go to sleep again. You know what I mean? Um, I'm not sure where that effect is coming from. I know that effect is real because I've experienced that like so many times. Mm -hmm. And then people, what people will do is they'll use intermittent fasting to avoid that effect. For me though, if I do that, and I avoid that effect, I just kind of push it off till whenever I eat my first meal. So if I wait, I don't know if you've had experience. I've had this experience. Like when I, if I wait to eat my, if I break my fast instead at like noon, instead of the morning, I'm just going to crash at noon. You know, I'm just gonna have the same crash I would have anyway. In some ways, sometimes it'll be worse. Like I'll, I'll like need to take a nap in the middle of the day. So, um, <laughs> that's what I'll say. So I, I do think there's some impact of like eating on like feeling sleepy, especially when you're breaking your fast. So I don't want to like downplay that. Hmm. But what I will say is that the studies that have been done on the acute effects of, of fasting on cognition and on mood tend to be negative. So people tend to do worse in their cognition whenever they fast for long periods of time. Now, this may be unrelated to this whole effect of uh, uh, sort of putting off one's breakfast in the morning. You might actually get some short term. I, I noticed that I might in the short term get some benefits, but in the but uh, in general, fasting tends to decrease cognitive performance, it tends to decrease your mood, it tends to make you more irritable. I know anecdotally myself that if I, uh, that whenever I switched from doing intermittent fasting to eating, you know, throughout the day, I became a much more pleasant and tolerable person. Um, so yeah, that's where the short-term data tends to indicate. And we don't have any long-term data. So some people will say, well, if I, uh, if I adapt to intermittent fasting, if I get used to it, will things get better? I think probably things will get better, but it seems to me unlikely that things will reverse. So like, it's not like your body learns to tolerate intermittent fasting and then suddenly uh, you start thriving on it. Usually what happens in these kinds of cases is if you have something that's stressing you out and you're not doing well with, uh, usually you'll just get more resilient at dealing with that and it won't suddenly like cause some great enhancement. So I would be surprised if chronically the results of intermittent fasting enhanced cognitive function and enhanced your mood, whereas the short-term effects uh, did the opposite. I would be surprised about that. But I think it's likely that um, you'll, you'll produce tolerance or you'll not notice the effects as much in the long term if you do it for a long time compared to the, to the short term. The one caveat I'll put on that, though, is you can often just get used to something and then it becomes normal. So say you become irritable on intermittent fasting uh, and then you like notice in the long term, hey, you know, like I'm dealing with it a lot better. 
I would just say for people who think that to try going back to not fasting, and I would say in a substantial number of cases, people will, will see a night and day difference. It may just be that people are just normalizing their irritability and being like, well, I'm not, it's, things are not so bad. I would just say like, try it the other way again and uh, see if you feel better because I think a lot of people will notice that they will feel better. And I just say this because in my case, I was like a fasting zealot. I believed in fasting 100%. My life got so much better when I started eating throughout the day as opposed to fasting. That's just my personal opinion. Um, maybe other people who are more uh, by their sort of personality a little bit more laid back, they might tolerate it a little bit more. For me, as somebody who like finds things irritating often, uh, I didn't do so well with intermittent fasting. And I'll say this, if you do, if you fast mice, right, they do the same thing. They eat each other. If you fast mice and put them in say cage, you do experiments with fasted mice. They have to be separated and put into different cages because they will eat each other if you fast them. And I would suggest that maybe there might be a similar effect in humans as well. So um so yeah yeah well that, the reason i'm speaking about the fasting is it's something i've been practicing for probably over a year now about a year and of course i i, I looked at some of the evidence and the research and i'm i'm sort of my sort of approach when it comes to trying anything new is just to try it and see how i feel with it and i've been doing sure. it for a period of time and i do feel like i do have more focus and clarity in the morning times where i do the bulk of my work so generally i'd work do most of my work from say seven in the morning till 2 p.m and that's when i'm generally fasting and then from 2 p.m onwards I'll, I'll i'll eat my meals and also it saves me time as well i don't have to leave my desk and go and cook a meal and do whatever i need to do so it improves productivity so that's why i'm asking the questions i'm, I'm quite curious about it from a personal perspective too for sure yeah no i i felt the same and i think you're probably right it probably does like um for me, though, that increase in productivity kind of made me a little bit edgy, you know, like on edge, which is which is good. Whenever you're trying to like get stuff done, you're trying to crush stuff in the morning. That's like a good state to be in. But like often I'm around other people and there's some downsides to that as well. So, yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. And uh, and I, I've experienced those effects as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of uh, building lean muscle mass, though, do, do you feel it's a kind of counterproductive approach because meal timing and frequency of meals and frequency of especially protein intake is so important for most yeah you yeah 100 i think yeah we're definitely on the same page there yeah the more frequent you get your protein probably the more chance you have for that sort of anabolic stimulus of the protein and so you're probably going to get more gains but again if that's your strategy for reducing calorie intake you still might take that trade-off in order to stay leaner. It's sort of a, a personal um, thing, but all else equal, if you take the same number of calories probably distributed over a larger, you know, a larger window, you're probably going to do better for your for your lean body mass in the long run. Are these effects going to be really large? Probably not. Like compared to everything else, there's so many other things that are important for gaining and maintaining body composition, but there may be some small marginal effects as far as uh, as lean mass is concerned. Okay. Can you give us some idea in terms of what your general nutritional intake looks like? Uh, yeah. So um, right now, what you eat what you eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have, I have. I'll tell you what my optimal is because right now I'm, I'm broke. So uh, I'm eating enough to just like maintain what I have and maybe increase it a little bit slowly. But um, yeah, I, I love protein shakes, especially like there's this company in the United States. It's called Premier Protein. This, it tastes like like liquid ice cream and it's just like pure protein and like artificial sweetener. I love it so much. And I, I love drinking those because I really do believe that uh, protein is important for body, for, for body composition. So maximizing your, your gains, of course, training intensity and that kind of thing is also super important. And of course, calorie intake is also important, but Protein has, a, has an important effect. So I love drinking those protein shakes throughout the day whenever I have the money to do so. But apart from that, um, and I'll drink like five or six, it's ridiculous. Apart from that, um, I eat, again, you know, as you can see, I eat oatmeal. I didn't have a chance to add anything to it. Uh, I like to eat most of my calories or as many calories as I can in the morning uh, because there's really, I think, really robust evidence indicating that um, all else equal. Now, again, if you're very lean and you're very fit and you're, 
otherwise in great condition and great health. Um, doing uh, more calories in the evening may not have as much of an effect on your metabolic function as if you're maybe more overweight. But for me, I've noticed that if I try to get more calories earlier in the morning, it seems to me, and I, this is supported by the research, it seems to me that I do better as far as uh, staying leaner and um, uh, still having good performance. So I tend to focus most of my calories in the morning. I have to have a really big breakfast as big as I can uh, with a bowl of oatmeal. And then I'll have mixed berries, like dark berries, uh, like raspberries, blueberries. And then there's, uh, there's another in there, blackberries, I guess. I mix that in with the oatmeal. I have an artificial sweetener as well. Then I have another bowl of, um, uh, and so it's like a substantial bowl. It's like this big. And then I'll have another bowl of, um, and I, okay, so I have, so in addition to this, as I mentioned, I, I put in the freezer uh, um, all the food I have in the week. So every single day I have the same thing. I eat the same thing and I don't ever get tired of this. I know other people might, it's, uh, I, enjoy the taste every single time I've been doing this for like over a year, the same exact thing every day. Um, I have two containers filled with, uh, there's mixed vegetables, like stir fry vegetables. So it's going to be like snap peas, green beans, uh, some peppers, mushrooms, those watercress things and broccoli florets. And I have some of that on top of like lentils. So lentils are a really healthy food for, um, like in general, like as far as carbohydrates are concerned, if you want to eat carbohydrates, beans or legumes are a really good choice for that. So I have like, I think 200 grams cooked of that on top. And then I have on top of that, some sardines. So like a can of sardines. And, uh, if I, sometimes I'll add something extra, but usually that's sort of my, like my base meal there. Um, and then I'll have one of those in the morning as well. And then I'll finish up the berries. So I have a container of berries that I take some of the berries to put it on my oatmeal from. I think I have 500 grams of those. So it's quite a lot. And uh, I finish that up as well. So it's a really big breakfast with berries, the vegetables, lentils, sardines, and then a big bowl of oatmeal. I have that early in the morning uh, as soon as I get up to start the day off. And I um, also have like a, and so then I'll, from, from then, from that point, I have two more containers. One is the same thing of uh, the lentils, the vegetables, and sardines. The other, well, okay, well, yeah. And then I have uh, some nuts. So then um, based on, upon my physical activity for the day, um, I'll eat all of the nuts, so 100 grams of mixed nuts. I'll eat all of those nuts. I'll eat the other uh, container of, uh, you know, the, the beans, the the vegetables and the sardines. I'll eat the other container later in the day. And then um, often I'll have another small bowl of oatmeal in the evening after I do like training. So I like to do jujitsu and wrestling and then like lift weights later in the, in the evening or uh, like right after that, I'll tend to have another bowl of oatmeal. But again, throughout the day, I like to have these protein shakes um, to add more protein. Cause it doesn't sound like I'm getting a lot of protein and I'm not with it with, uh, without the shake. So uh, I, I could, I could add like, um, like lean meat. If I was, if I, so personally, I, eat, I tend to eat more of a plant-based diet. I don't eat a lot of bland animals. I'll eat some beef. I don't eat chicken and eggs. And that's just like a personal, like, um, ethical preference. It's not related to the nutritional quality. If you're interested in adding more, um, like protein from animal sources though, and not just following like me eating, drinking shakes and, and eating like mostly a plant-based diet with some fish. Um, what I would do personally to do that would probably be to add like chicken, like lean chicken. That's going to be your healthiest option. It's going to be highest in protein, lowest in, in, in calories. Um, and it's, and the kind of uh, fatty acids in the chicken are going to be the healthiest for your heart. That's what I would do. Um, I wouldn't add a whole bunch of red meat. I know that there's a lot of people who think that that's a good thing. You can, if you do eat red meat, I would say to try to make it as lean as possible. Again, uh, again, that's going to be good for your heart and again, for good for maintaining weight. If you have that high protein intake, it's going to be, there's going to be a good amount of bulk. Um, also, there's like a lot of water and meat, so it's good for satiety. Mm -hmm. uh, not because of necessarily the protein intake, but because of the, the food itself is, is a very satiating food, like especially lean beef. So yeah, that's what I would do. Um, eggs are all right. If you're going to use eggs to replace a like, junk food, it's probably going to be good for you. It's probably going to be a net positive. If you're going to use eggs to replace like really wholesome foods like oatmeal, 
like um, like beans, like like vegetables, like fish, and I think maybe even like chicken. I think it's not as good. Uh, um, there's some discussion about this, but yeah, if it's if you're going to replace unhealthy foods, eggs is a really good idea. If you're going to replace more healthy foods, it's either neutral or maybe not as good. That would be uh, what the research tends to indicate. So not not to say that they're necessarily bad. Um, I, I would say moderation might be the good. Uh, I feel bad saying this because eggs are such a delicious food. I used to eat like tons of them and uh, they're, if they, they taste so good. They feel so good. Like it feels good eating eggs. But I think that's what the research tends to indicate. It's probably due to the, the dietary cholesterol. Now, the dietary cholesterol in most people is not going to increase their uh, blood cholesterol, maybe about 80% of the people, but in about 20% of people it does. So one way to check this is to, and most people aren't going to do this, but so that, that's why I just give a blanket recommendation. Most people are not going to check their blood work. You know, it's an idea in theory, but most people are not going to like take out eggs and then check their blood work and then add them back in and check their blood. Most people are not going to do that. It's just like, I've never done that. <laughs> and I know about this stuff. It's just like, who, who, it's a pain. But um, 20% of the people will have an increase in their blood cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and it does play a role in heart disease. So I don't know. So I'm, I'm, uh, I know I went off on a long tangent on eggs, but uh, that's what I would do if I was going to eat more meat. I would focus on, say, lean chicken and lean beef if I was going to add more meat to the diet. And the reason I wouldn't add more fish is because I'm already eating two cans of sardines a day, and there's some potential for toxicity. I will say I have noticed symptoms of toxicity. I haven't gone too high in fish. You know, like I have like sleep, weird sleep disturbances that go away like consistently if I stop eating so much. So I always limit myself to just two servings and. Uh, and sometimes if you eat salmon every day, depending upon the source, you'll actually get like toxic symptoms. Like some sources are perfectly fine. Other sources are not. So I would say to be careful about the, uh, the fit overdoing it on the fish. That's why I would say uh, focus more on the land animals instead. And of course, whey protein is an excellent choice as well, which is kind of what's in the premier protein that I drink is a milk protein. It's a fantastic choice and many protein supplements are great. So that's what I'd say. Do you tend to lean more towards organic foods or again, is that something you've debunked? There's not a great, a great deal of support for eating organic uh, versus not organic. I would say the main thing is just making sure that you uh, get your say vegetable intake. I don't think if you're focusing on, so is my kale organic or is it not organic? I think the main thing you're going to focus on is like, am I just eating the vegetables? I think that's the thing. I think when you look at, um, how these things are regulated, the pesticides, the herbicides, et cetera. You know, see, I, I haven't done a, a video yet on this, so I'm still. Mm -hmm. um, the one question I have personally uh, is when you eat organic, you're not getting a no pesticide food. And often people think that there's no pesticides in organics. No, there are pesticides in organic foods. It's just they're organic pesticides. And some organic pesticides are actually worse than many non-organic pesticides. And that's an interesting caveat. There's like a really interesting caveat. So there's some, there's like really important copper um, herbicides. Those copper herbicides are terrible for you. Like they're really super toxic. So just because you're, you know, getting higher levels of non-organic pesticides or herbicides, say in the blood, there's studies showing higher levels of those, doesn't mean you're not getting other toxic chemicals. Would I say probably on average when you're eating organic versus non-organic, it's probably better for your, um, for your body probably, but the impact is, is, is really small and to the degree that nobody's ever, nobody's ever measured it. Nobody's ever gone and had a study and shown in the study that, oh, if I, if I eat organic versus non-organic, like I literally have changes in blood markers. No, besides simply the concentrations, which are extremely small in the blood of these non-organic herbicides and pesticides, there's never been documented any change in health markers, you know? So that's the one thing I'd say, like, it's speculative. Oh, is it going to have an impact? Well, uh, within the concentrations that the regulations have uh, say that these foods are supposed to have, no. And even when the foods exceed the regulation, um, amounts they do sometimes. So sometimes they'll look at the residue concentrations and they'll see an excess of herbicide or pesticide concentrations in some foods like that they sample. Even whenever that's the case, these regulations are done so that it's like the way that the, the cutoffs are done is that uh, it's like a hundred fold less or maybe even 10,000 fold less than you would ever see any effect. And these are like small effects. 
in like lab animals. So you're getting like, it's a huge, huge, huge margin of safety. So whenever you're getting like twice the, the lower, the, the, the toxic limit, according to these organizations, you need to understand this is like a thousand, this is like a hundred or 10,000 fold less than you'd even see a, a small effect in an animal. So it's unlikely to have any health effect. It's never been documented that there is a health effect of these uh, herbicides and pesticides. So, but if you, if you have the extra money to do it and, uh, and, and uh, you, you want to spend that extra money. Um, I do think it's a really minor issue and probably a non-existent issue, but you, you may get some small uh, reduction in, in pesticide and, and herbicide exposure that may not be clinically significant uh, by eating organic versus non-organic. I think that's a the rough view to have. Just to sort of go back there as well on uh, <clears throat> one of the things you spoke about was the, was the eggs. And uh, I was actually quite surprised that uh, still 20% of people would have uh, an, would have a negative impact on their cholesterol levels. So yeah, 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 because I believed, again, I haven't done as much research as you have, of course, but that that was debunked, that eggs do not have um, a correlative effect on your cholesterol. So this is, you're reversing this now again, and it, it does. And again, eggs being, being seen as one of the, one of the better foods for, muscle growth because it's a it's a complete protein with all nine amino acids so but at the same time you would not replace a lean chicken breast for example with an egg or with eggs yeah yeah i would say yeah lean chicken breast fish are probably better sources or lean proteins lean milk proteins are probably better as far as um have getting those anabolic effects without getting the the cholesterol effects now as far as the increase yeah so most people are not going to get an increase in their uh, LDL cholesterol levels, their blood cholesterol levels as a result of egg consumption. But it's believed, according to the current understanding and a current, the current set of studies, it's believed that about 20% of people do see it, an increase in LDL cholesterol as a result of egg consumption. So, And if you're already, yeah, and if you're not taking in a bunch of dietary cholesterol in the first place, although most people are, but if you're not, uh, the effect of eggs might be bigger. But if you're already eating meat and stuff, it's probably not going to make any difference. But uh, yeah, there is a small number of people. So it ends up being the message ends up getting simplified that, oh, it has no effect because uh, most people don't have an effect. It does in, in, in say one in five people have an effect. But uh, that message has gotten oversimplified to say there's no effect at all. And of course, some studies. OK, so if you compare egg consumption to um, to a background diet, say the standard Western diet, I think eggs tend to show benefits but if you compare it to say like higher quality diets then eggs tend to show more of a harm uh so it depends on like what your background food that you're comparing it to is so that's why i say it depends on what you're replacing eggs with mm-hmm. um so so uh yeah so but then often again that 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 message often gets oversimplified and so depending upon the study design etc the people say eggs are beneficial or eggs are harmful um, or eggs have no effect whatsoever uh, you know compared to a normal background diet like the standard western diet yeah eggs are probably not going to have negative impact and may have some benefits but it again depends on what you're comparing it to okay so, mm-hmm. so there's yeah there's ca- there's always there's always some nuance but that's why I don't like talking about eggs because I know they're great for muscle growth. Like I used to, I used to eat literally like one to two dozen a day whenever I whenever I was in college and I got really really big. And uh, they're they're great for muscle growth. But there is some concern. But whenever I went to the doctor, you know, the doctor said I had high cholesterol levels. You know, and I, you know, so okay. got these pluses and minuses. So yeah. yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Well, look, as I said, I've got so much information for me and there's so much more I could derive and uh, we could go down many rabbit holes, but it could be uh, something for our future podcast. And for the time, uh, we're absolutely loaded with information. And for any of the guys listening to this, if they want to uh, find um, out more about you and the work that you do, where's the best place to, to get you at? So the best place to stuff where I'm releasing most of my stuff now is going to be on, uh, my podcast or my YouTube channel. So the podcast is the Kevin Bass show and you can find that on, mm-hmm. you know, Apple podcasts, Spotify, etc. You can also find me on YouTube where I'm releasing basically, I'm just the, the, the same uh, thing. I'm just releasing an audio format on the podcast and I'm releasing a video format on YouTube. It's not like 
when you watch the YouTube, you're not like, wow, I'm gaining so much more. I'm just like talking into the camera. But if you like watching as opposed to listening, you can find me on the Kevin Bass show or uh, you can also search for K Bass Philadelphia on uh, on the YouTube. And then my uh, channel will pop up. And then on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, you can find me at Kevin and Bass, K-E-V-I-N-N-B-A-S-S. You can also find me in the same place on Patreon if you want to support the stuff that I do. Uh, yeah, so that's where you can find me on social media. Nice one. I will add all those links below. And uh, thank you so much for your time and for your brilliant information. Keep putting it out there. I love the stuff. So I appreciate your work, Kev. I appreciate the appreciation and I'm, uh, I appreciate you having me on. So uh, this was a lot of fun. Nice one. Until next time. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Warrior Podcast. If this episode has added value to your life, please share this episode on your social media platforms so that others too can gain the insight, information, and inspiration that they need in order to move forward in their lives. For the time being, stay strong and keep fighting the good fight.